I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 8. Matthew chapter 8. High schoolers, take notes. We are actually, it's been an awesome week. Some of our community groups started this last week. Other ones are starting this coming week. Our high school ministry for the first time in five and a half years of being a church, we launched our uh, high school ministry. And then tonight we are starting our middle school ministry. Um, so we are so excited about what God is, uh, what God is doing. Um, so we're back in the book of Matthew after this summer we've been talking at length about what is the gospel. Gospel meaning the good news that Jesus Christ paid the debt for our sins, that we no longer have to, that he died on the cross shedding his blood which covers our sins, he took our sins to the grave where he was buried and then he rose again defeating sin and death so that anyone that calls on him Anyone who calls out for forgiveness no longer has to pay the debt of sin and eternal separation from God. The most incredible act of love that we will never be able to fathom. And as we've, back in Matthew, we've called going through the book of Matthew, your kingdom come. Matthew talks at length about the kingdom of God. And as Jesus is talking about this, he's in the book of, uh, or as he's talking about the Sermon on the Mount, he says how we should pray is, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now last week we were at the uh, first four verses of chapter eight, and we saw the leper. Um, the leper would have been alone, would have been an outcast of society, uh, would have had to have yelled unclean, unclean, wherever he Went and Jesus goes to the leper, and for the first time, what was unclean that was touched didn't make what touched it unclean. Instead, Jesus touched the unclean and made it clean. And from that, we see that this leper is a picture of our sin and, and how the disgusting parts of our sin. But when Jesus enters into our life, what he touches, what was once deemed unclean and alone and lacking of community and lacking of being near other people. When Jesus touches the unclean, it becomes clean. That once we were slaves to sin, but now we've been set free because of Christ and what he's done for us. And so as we continue to progress through the book of Matthew, uh, and tonight we're going to be very application heavy, I wanted to start off by just looking at some very big themes throughout the book of Matthew. Uh, these are things that no matter what we're talking about is we're going to be in chapters 8 and 9 the next uh, couple, I'm going to say weeks, but really it's months. Over the next couple months, what we're going to see always points back to these three overarching themes. And it's very important, and we mentioned this quote last week uh, from Tim Chester in his book, You Can Change. But he says, we often as human beings, and I'm just paraphrasing here because I don't have it memorized, we see ourselves as the main part of our story and God is just a character in our story, and that is a faulty view. We are characters in God's story. God's the hero. God's done it all. Jesus accomplished what needed to be accomplished, and when we align ourselves as a character in God's story, then we live a life that God has for us and has laid out for us. And so I want to bring the, a focus back to these three points. Please write them down. This is not just for Matthew, but for the entire Bible. But the way that Matthew has 
crafted this book, it points to these three overarching themes. Number one, and it's okay to say amen, Jesus is Lord. There we go. We can do better. Jesus is Lord. Meaning that Jesus is over all. In Colossians, we see that Jesus, uh, through him, all things were created by him and for him. That he is Lord of all. And that's what Matthew is always pointing back. All of the miracles that we see Jesus do is demonstrating that he is over all things. That he is Lord of all. Number two, God's kingdom is an upside-down kingdom. God's kingdom is an upside-down kingdom. When we talk about your kingdom come, all of us, with our earthly mindset and our earthly view, when we think of kingdom and the way that God describes his kingdom are two very different things. So we call it an upside-down kingdom because it's our view of God's kingdom. It's actually the proper view. We think that kingdoms are won by um, prideful human beings that are done out of might, that are done out of manipulation. Uh, Kingdoms are won through battles and wars, and this is what we see play out for the history of mankind. But then Jesus demonstrates his kingdom is completely different. Jesus, who is in the throne room of heaven, who is the commanding officer over all angels, leaves the right hand of God and comes to earth as a baby. Philippians 2 explains that Jesus comes to earth in complete humility. His kingdom is won by Jesus being abandoned and left by himself and being tortured and murdered and left to die on a cross. And that's how his kingdom is established. Then Jesus says things as we saw through uh, the Sermon on the Mount, uh, chapters 5, 6, and 7 in Matthew. And Jesus is saying things in his parables and he explains the kingdom of heaven. And he says in the kingdom of heaven, the last shall be first and the first shall be last. And he says you have to humble yourself. You have to be able to admit that there is a problem and call out to God. But everything in the world tells us that no, we are the center of our world. That what we think is obviously most important because I'm thinking it. And I'm awesome. And the problem in my life, all of them are caused by other people who don't recognize my awesomeness. But God is telling us, no, it's through humility. Jesus demonstrated his humility. And as we continue through Philippians 2, it says that because of his humility and what he went through and what he did, that every knee on heaven and earth and under the earth will bow and recognize him as Lord. So number two, God's kingdom is an upside-down kingdom. And ultimately, the problems that we have with God and what we don't like about him and his word and Jesus is usually when we are told this is the kingdom of God and it goes completely against what I want and the way that I want it. And then number three, this is going to sound if you grew up in a church with Sunday school, Jesus is the answer, right? Any answer that was asked when you were a little kid, everything back in Hope Kids right now, they're saying like, okay, who did this? And it's like, three, Jesus? The two, three, four, 15-year-olds? Everything, that was a joke. I'll try again. Jesus is the answer to everything in life. We get ourselves in trouble when we like to think of ourselves as the answer. I have accumulated enough earthly knowledge that I've done it. And you should be coming to me with all your problems. Uh, Jeff Vanderstelt says that 
If we fail to give one another Jesus, we lead one another away from him. In life, we should always, in our relationships with, uh, whether it's people in church, people in our family, people at work, if we are truly going to benefit somebody for eternity, if we are truly going to benefit someone in their life, we should always be pointing them to Jesus. If I am pointing you to be like me, you are in deep, deep trouble. If I am pointing you to be like some fill-in-the-blank celebrity, all-star, whatever it is, if I'm pointing you and saying, look at their life, look at their money, their talent, their looks, whatever it is, if I'm pointing you towards that, you're in big, big trouble. Everything in our lives should be pointing other people to Jesus, even people who say, I don't believe in Jesus, I don't want to know Jesus. Jesus obviously doesn't know how horrible my life is. We demonstrate Jesus and his kingdom pointing because he is the answer. So again, number one, Jesus is Lord. Number two, God's kingdom is an upside-down kingdom. And number three, Jesus is the answer. I want to invite you now to Matthew 8. And we're going to uh, go through two different sections here. And then we're going to look at the two sections together uh, in the application. But there is a lot of um, cultural relevancy in these two passages that we need to understand. So... Um, as we read through this, the first one is of a Roman centurion. A Roman centurion, uh, as the name implies, a centurion 100. A Roman centurion is a, think of a, I'm going to go to the army because that's what my brother was in. That's what I know. Whenever I jump out of that, I usually get yelled at. And Jeremy's not here, apparently, to yell at me when I talk about the Navy. And so, tell me, Mrs. Chance. Um, there were, my brother said when he was in Afghanistan for 16 months, his favorite way to find entertainment was to go to the dining hall and watch a private call a master sergeant, sir. Because the master sergeant, they take great pride in that they are not officers. And their response is always, what did you call me? I work for a living. Don't ever call me sir again. Both slamming officers but they take great pride in that they are a working man. They went through as an enlisted man, and they've been in the army long enough to build up to this rank. Don't call me sir. You call me master sergeant. And that's how a centurion was viewed. A centurion was an enlisted soldier who had worked his way through battle into a place where, and again, the Roman army was one of the most disciplined, well-trained army the world has ever seen. And so this Roman centurion that we're going to see, he is somebody who is battle-hardened. He has been through it all. But he's somebody that the officers trust to be over 100 soldiers. And he's also somebody that the 100 soldiers listen to and respect and will obey his command. Even if his command is certain death, they will follow his command. But another part of this picture is, this is a Roman centurion in Capernaum. Capernaum would have been the capital of the northern part of Israel. A lot of fishermen. This is where Jesus, most of his ministry is out of in Galilee. A lot of fishermen, shepherds, carpenters like Jesus. And it's just working people. And they hate the Romans. Please understand, the Jews hate the Romans. One of their political sects in the uh, Israeli world or the Jewish world was the zealots. We get our word terrorist from this word the Hebrew uses for zealot or Arabic word. They kept daggers hidden in their cloaks, and they at any time would try to lure 
a Roman soldier away from other Roman soldiers and stab and kill him. And that was a win. One of those, Simon the Zealot, mentioned it last week, was one of Jesus' disciples. That is the political party that he would have belonged to. And so the zealot saw Jesus saying, if you truly are the Messiah, obviously you're going to kill Roman soldiers. That's our problem. All of the Jewish people, and there would have been four different political entities, uh, only the Sadducees are the ones who became friends with the Romans because they could make a lot of money being friends with the Romans. But for the most part, they hated the Romans. The Romans were the problem. And I know this is ancient history. We would never blame a political being or figure or party for our problems every day. We are so far removed from that. But that's the problem is they put all the blame on the Romans. Oh, if only the Romans weren't here. And they had put all their hope in the Messiah will rescue us from the Romans. And when Jesus no longer seemed like he could rescue them from the Romans, they killed him. That's how much belief they had in and the hatred they had for the Romans. So I say all that so you have a picture painted for you as we read through the passage. But chapter 8, starting in verse 5. It says, When Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him asking for help. Lord, he said, my servant lies at home paralyzed, suffering terribly. Jesus said to him, Shall I come and heal him? The centurion replied, Lord, I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. But just say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority, with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes. And that one, come, and he comes. And I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed and said to those following him, Truly I tell you, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and will take their place at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the subjects of the kingdom will be thrown outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then Jesus said to the centurion, go, let it be done just as you believed it would. And his servant was healed at that moment. Now there is a lot going on in this passage. Imagine Jesus, and again, I don't have video of this, so I'm just saying what I think. Imagine Jesus is walking, and he's being followed by Jewish people who have seen him do miracles and who have heard him preach, and they are very interested in what he has to say, and so they are following behind him. And uh, in this passage, we see the centurion came, the way that Luke describes it in chapter 10, uh, which has the same verbal meaning, meaning the centurion gave an order, and either people came representing the centurion or the centurion came himself, and he comes up to Jesus. Now think about this. Jesus is being followed by these Jews who in their mind, if he's really the Savior, when he sees the centurion, it's going to go down. Big things are happening. The centurion comes up to Jesus and says, hey, my slave is sick. This is shocking. A slave would have been considered in two ways. They were a farm animal with opposable thumbs, or they were farm machinery that could talk. That is how the slaves were described in Roman times. They had no value to them. A slave master, if you owned a slave, you could do whatever you wanted to them, and they did. And it was, there was no repercussion that could happen. If they had a time, time with a slave and, 
And really, in Roman times, they could do this to anybody in their household. They could kill their own child. Uh, they could kill their own wife. They could kill their slave as a, head, as a man, a head of a household. And there was zero repercussions legally that could be taken. And so a centurion, and, and you picture this battle-hardened man who's worked his way up over years of service in the Roman army who finds himself in Israel. And for a Roman soldier to be in Israel means they have to be ready for battle at all times. And he comes up and he says, hey, I'm concerned about my slave. And the Jews are waiting to see what Jesus' response is. And what Jesus does as he's looking at this centurion, he turns around and he has shock on his face. Can you believe this? And when he uses the word truly, I tell you, what that ultimately means is, hey, pay attention. Look at me, everybody. Guess what? And he goes on to say, this centurion, and they're like, here he comes, has more faith than anyone I've met in Israel. And that means his audience. Upside down kingdom. Seeing the centurion has now demonstrated by faith because of his love for what people didn't have love for because he's come to me, a Jew who's just a carpenter who has no status and no Roman citizenship, and he's come to me and asked for help demonstrating humility, demonstrating faith, demonstrating love for people that people just didn't even see as humans, let alone love them. A slave boy sick would have meant nothing at this time, very replaceable, a dime a dozen. And Jesus points out and goes against this extreme, whether you want to call it uh, racism or extreme bias towards the Roman that the Roman would have also had for a Jew. And Jesus says, hey, everybody, take note. And then he, that second part where he talks about the feast of the kingdom of heaven, that is um, communication that the Jews would have understand, but I want to explain it. It was believed that when the kingdom of heaven finally came, and at this time, it was when they finally come and defeat the Romans. There is going to be a massive feast where all the Jews get together with their Messiah, with their Savior. And in legend, they said they would get the Leviathan. And they use other words you find in Job that we believe mean dinosaurs. And there was going to be such a big feast that it would take all these massive creatures to feed everybody there. And that's what they were looking forward to. As a Jew, you're looking forward to the Romans being defeated and having this big feast where you have to find the biggest creatures on the earth in order to have enough food for everybody. It was something that they had put their hope in. And what Jesus says is, hey, at that feast of the kingdom of heaven, some of you aren't going to be there because you've relied on your birthrights, you've relied on your uh, race, you've relied on your um, position, you've relied on who your relatives are, who your parents are. And so when he says in that feast with Abraham, Isaac, and and Jacob, some of you aren't going to be there. You're going to be cast outside. And he's doing this as a way to demonstrate how important faith is. The centurion has faith. And then he says, and I'm going to gather people from the east and the west, meaning all the Gentiles who you hate, who you've been told are unclean, that's who I'm bringing in. Because it takes faith in order to know me, not works, not birthright, not relatives not who you were born to. The other surprising thing that we see here is the centurion has obviously studied Jewish law. He has studied what it means that when Jesus says, I will come to your home and heal him, and the centurion demonstrates his knowledge of God's word, he says, no, you can't. You'll become unclean if you enter a Gentile's home. 
And he goes back and says, but I know, going back to the very beginning, Jesus is Lord. Jesus is over all, in all, and through all. And he says, listen, I'm a commanding officer in the Roman army. I tell somebody to do something, they do it. I tell a servant or a slave to do something, they do it. So surely, and this is where he shows his faith, you are Lord of all. You can say be healed, and that servant will be healed. And Jesus says, go, it is done. Come to our second story, starting in verse 14. That when Jesus came into Peter's house, he saw Peter's mother-in-law lying in bed with a fever. He touched her hand, and the fever left her. And she got up and began to wait on him. When evening came, many who were demon-possessed were brought to him, and he drove out the spirits with a word and healed all the sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. He took up our infirmities and bore our diseases. So we've talked about this last week. Matthew doesn't write his um, gospel in a chronological way, so we don't know the order of exactly what happened where. But he's out doing ministry. He's in Capernaum. Uh, Capernaum was the capital of where uh, he spent most of his time in the northern part of Israel in Galilee, like we already discussed. But it is believed that Peter is married and that Peter's home, they also have Peter's wife's mother living with them. And through just historical writings, it seems that uh, whenever they would go out, they would always return to Peter's home. And that is more than likely where Jesus, remember Jesus says, I don't have a head to lay my, I don't have a pillow to lay my head on, I don't have a roof to cover my head, I don't have a home. And so he would just stay where he was, and in and, and historical writings, not biblical, uh, it's believed that he would stay at Peter's home, and a lot of the disciples would. And Peter's mother-in-law would take care of them and, and prepare food for them, and this was like the headquarters of their ministry, if you will, that when they go out, that we'll see in chapter 10, they would always return here, and Peter's mother-in-law is always serving on them. And Jesus comes back, and Peter's mother-in-law is sick with fever. Again, she is now considered un clean. You can't touch her or you become unclean. Fevers, more than all, more likely, would result in death at this time. This is a horrific infection that they didn't have anything, they didn't have antibiotics at the time, and this is somebody who has cared for Jesus and his followers repeatedly. And it's interesting because in all of the stories of the healings, this is a one that's very few. There is no dialogue. Jesus walks into the room, touches her, And it isn't that she loses the fever, it's that she is completely healed. She immediately is up and starts waiting on everybody, back to her complete normal self. I don't know if you've ever been sick with something that brought on a fever. Apparently there's been something going around. But you know when you are getting better, it takes days to recover a lot of the time. It takes time to recover. But here he touches and what was unclean, immediately becomes clean, immediately becomes healed. Jesus demonstrating that he is Lord, that he is over everything, that he is over sickness, that he is over whatever we face in our humanity as a problem to demonstrate that he can take care of the two big problems we don't have an answer to without him. We don't have an answer to sin and we don't have an answer to death. And Jesus is continually demonstrating that he is the answer. He heals Peter's mother-in-law, and she immediately starts to serve. Again, women at this time are second-class citizens. They do not have any of the rights 
of men. So oftentimes you see Jesus explaining when, when the religious leaders of Israel are saying, well, like, and at this time they had written laws saying, basically, uh, if your wife burned the toast, you can divorce her. She's obviously not a fit wife. And they had all these laws that the men could do away with their wives for any little thing, and she was left out on her own. She had no rights as a woman. So Jesus was always explaining to them, no, this is why you'd have to take care of women. That's why there were so many laws in the Old Testament to make sure that women were taken care of because the mankind left to itself, men, will always find a people group to think less of and they will treat them less of if they can. Jesus is always elevating the people that are looked down at in society at that time. Paul continues to write the same way. He is always elevating women to the same level. So here Jesus, again, a woman, and more than likely an older woman, that at this point in her life would have just been left to go, and Jesus brings healing. Jesus is continuing to serve the outcasts of society. And I'm going to use the word unlovely. That's not because that's how I think of them, but that is because of what Jesus and that culture at the time would have thought of them, and Jesus goes in and demonstrates that he loves the unlovely. So now we step into our application, and hopefully you got a handout. If you did not get a handout, raise your hand. Okay, raise up because I don't believe everybody. If you didn't get a hand, raise it up. If you don't have one, please raise your hand. Sarah, Will, we will get you one, okay? Just raise them up. We will grab you. These are important because this is your homework. As we come into this part of our, our application, I want to ask you, how are you living these out? How are you living these out in your life? How are you discipling the people around you? In other words, how are you helping somebody grow one step closer in their relationship with Jesus by demonstrating and living these out? What are you demonstrating for your children? What are you demonstrating for your coworkers? What are you demonstrating for your household, your roommates, whatever it is, wherever you live, learn, work, and play? How are you living these out to point people to Jesus? <clears throat> so number one, Faith is demonstrated through loving the unlovely. When we think about the word faith, and that's what we see uh, repeatedly as we see these miracles happening, we see um, Jesus going to the marginalized, going to the social outcasts, going to the alone, the people that feel by themselves, the people who have been told to stay by themselves, the people that society has no use for, the beggars, the blind the paralyzed, the weird, the lepers, the women, the slaves, the soldiers, anyone who one people group has written off, Jesus is going to them. And he's demonstrating that if we believe in him, if we have faith in him, our faith will be demonstrated by how we treat those that are so hard to love. Going back to Philippians chapter 2, Paul writes, just before he explains the mind of Christ, he says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. That isn't saying devalue yourself. You are a, a creation of God. You have value. You can find your identity in Him. It's saying that is awesome but also value others higher than 
yourself. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Going back to the beginning. It's very easy to be nice to people who give you stuff. It's very nice to be people who can benefit you in some way. But faith is demonstrated. Jesus demonstrated that he is doing nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, and neither shall you or I. That we humble ourselves and value others higher than we place on ourselves. By the way, this is not what we are told daily by commercials, by shows, by whatever it is. It's you got to look out for yourself. If you don't take care of yourself, who else is going to take care of? Who else is going to take care of you? Watch your back. Don't trust people. Cut out people. Get rid of people. Jesus is saying, Jesus is continually loving the outclass. By the way, the outcasts is me. The outcast is you. Because of our sin, we are unclean. Jesus touches the unclean and makes clean. Jesus loved us when we should have When we are children deserving of wrath, we are called. But God loved us so much that he sent his son to die for you and for me. We were the outcasts, but only because of God's mercy and grace can we now be clean. Can we now have a place as co-heirs with Jesus? Why? Because Jesus can always see what we cannot see. Man looks on the outside, but Jesus looks at the heart. We are so quick to judge people. It's kind of a running joke with a lot of people, but particularly Liz, if I would say, well, okay, but don't judge me. I was like, Liz, I have judged you so much already in life. <laughs> Whenever I hear somebody say, like, okay, but, you know, I'm not ready, or my hair's not done, or so don't judge me. I was like, oh, please, I have so judged you already. I'm a human being. It's what I do. Don't act like you have it. Right? Like, oh, I don't, I don't judge people. Yeah, you're lying. That's all we do. If you can go to a grocery store right now and come back here and honestly tell me you didn't judge one person, I will hug you. I don't really have anything to give you. Yeah, I'll pay for your groceries. Chances are that you judged people that walked into this room tonight. Um, Chances are we've criticized, we've critiqued people within the last hour. But Jesus sees his creation. Jesus knows why he created you and why he created me. And I'm so thankful that Jesus loves the unlovely because I know myself. So here's your question that I want you to discuss in community groups this week. And if you're not in a community group, please come talk to us. We would love to get you into a community group. Um, Maybe it's a question that you ask your household your spouse, your family, your friend, whatever it is. question that I want you to write down is, who is it hardest for you to show love towards? Who is it hardest for you to show love towards? If you write down nobody, you're a liar. Number two, faith is demonstrated in God-glorifying action. Faith is demonstrated in God-glorifying action. Remember, everything we do should point back to God. The centurion's faith amazed 
Jesus. Think about that. The all-knowing, omniscient, all-powerful Jesus. The faith of a centurion, he had a look of amazement on his face. And looked at all the other people who were following him and says, hey, nobody in Israel has faith like this guy. And then he talks about the Gentiles coming to faith. Please understand how offensive that is to the Jewish people following him. They are probably thinking, I think I misunderstood what he just said. Surely he means from the east and west, he's talking about all the Jews that live far away. And when he says, the subjects of my kingdom are going to be cast out, that's not me, that's Jim. That's a bad dude. Jesus is showing that it is faith, by grace through faith, that we come into a relationship with him. That he is opening this up for everyone, the Gentiles. Jesus healed people so they could see what the kingdom of heaven was like, pointing everyone back to their need for a relationship with God. The reason that Jesus is doing all of these miracles is to show people his power and that when his kingdom comes, this is what it's going to be like. There is no sickness. There is no disease. There is no hatred. There are no tears. When we represent the kingdom of God here on earth, we do the same thing. We love people. We care for people. We value them higher than ourselves. That's how we demonstrate the kingdom of heaven. If it points back to us, it is not God glorifying. It is self-glorifying. You cannot make God look awesome and yourself look awesome at the same time. You're either doing it for God or you're doing it for yourself. There is a handout that should have come along inside. We're going over that tonight. That's something you're going to go over in community groups. That's something for you to walk through by yourself. That's something for you to just think, how do we look at faith? Explain that more in a second. But James 2, 14 through 19 when it talks about action being caused by faith, James writes, What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or a sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, Go in peace, keep warm and well-fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. You believe that there is one God, good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. And then drop down to verse 26. As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. Meaning, when we have faith, we will know it by God-glorifying action. Whatever you believe, action follows. If you believe that all of your answers will come if you save up to this amount, if all of your happiness will come because you can retire early, all of your happiness comes if you have the right car, all of your happiness comes, you name it, then your actions will demonstrate that that is what you believe. You will always sacrifice for what you worship, and what you worship is what's driving you. 
please understand we cannot do enough good to earn a relationship with Jesus. Last week we talked about Isaiah. It says all of your good works that you've done apart from Christ are like filthy rags. That is the rags that uh, would be used for women's menstruation and rags that would be used to cover up lepers' sores. They could do nothing with them. They were unclean. They'd bring them to the outside of the city and burn them. And God is telling us that all of your good works apart from him, that's that. We need faith in Christ, that we do things for him, by him, through him, through the Holy Spirit guiding us. There is not enough good stuff you can do in the world to earn a relationship with Jesus. He did it all. He is the answer. But once we have a relationship with Jesus, we will have a desire out of gratitude to serve. So, in that handout will be questions like, do you serve out of obligation or guilt or out of gratitude and awe? Be honest as you work through that handout. Be honest with the people you're talking to about where you line up, but also, is there a plan to change? So go through this in your community groups. It'll be so much fun. And then number three, faith is demonstrated in serving. Faith is demonstrated in serving. Uh, Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, Paul writes, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast, for we are God's handiwork. Stop there for a second. We are sinners separated from God when we have not made Him the forgiver of our sins and the leader of our life. But in that, all of us have been created by God. Think of the love and care that goes into an all-loving, all-knowing God when He calls you His handiwork. That He crafted you and built you the way that He wanted you. Will Mancini says that all of you have been perfectly designed and created and built to be a professional you. But we spend so much of our lives trying to be somebody else. We spend so much of our lives trying to be a professional somebody else or be like this person when we find our identity in Christ and understand that we are His creation, that we are His handiwork, that He has designed you with the talents and abilities and gifts. And when you turn over your life to Him, and that's where we go back to the Beatitudes talking about meekness is, is under control by God of everything that He has designed you for, that is where we truly find our purpose. But we spend so much of our life trying to chase other things that we want, not necessarily how God has designed us for. We go back, for we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. God has already lined up exactly why he designed you to be you, how he designed you. But not only did he design you to be this certain way, he has also given and he's already had plans made for you to follow through on that only you can do because you're you. God does not make mistakes. God doesn't have accidents. He created you with purpose. I look at Peter's mother-in-law. 
And she is healed and immediately starts serving. She's recognized what Jesus has done. Kind of weird to how to attribute this quote, but Oscar Wilde wrote it in a mocking, uh, mocking Jesus. Uh, the theologian W.B. Yeats reused it in his autobiography for God's glory. This is not biblical, what I'm about to read. But I read it so that you can kind of see this, this illustration. But he writes, Christ came from a white plain to a purple city. And as he passed through the first street, he heard voices overhead and saw a young man lying drunk upon a windowsill. He said, why do you waste your soul in drunkenness, Jesus said. The man said, Lord, I was a leper and you healed me. What else can I do? A little farther through the town, he saw a young man following a harlot and said, why do you dissolve your soul in debauchery? And the young man answered, Lord, I was blind and you healed me. What else can I do? At last, in the middle of the city, he saw an old man crouching, weeping on the ground. And when he asked why he wept, the old man answered, Lord, I was dead and you raised me into life. What else can I do but weep? If this was real and we were there, and we see a leper who has been unclean, who has been alone, he knows what he has missed, and Jesus makes clean what is unclean, and his response to that is addiction and drunkenness, we would say, what is wrong with you? If we then saw a, a man who was blind and he's using his eyesight to chase prostitutes and to chase women, we're like, God didn't heal you for that. He didn't give you vision, so that's your response. And if we saw a man weeping who has died and has been brought back to life, we would say, how can you be sad about that? But I imagine the former leper, the former blind man, and the former dead men would look at us and have the same questions. You have been healed. Your sins have been forgiven. You are loved with an unconditional love that we can't experience anywhere else in life. You have hope. You have joy. So why are you chasing all these other things? Why is so much of our daily life, weekly life, monthly life, yearly life in pursuit of something that will not last for eternity? Can we really say that we are thankful for all that God has done when those are the things that we put so much time, energy, effort, and resources in? So how do we redeem our talents and abilities? How do we put them under God's control? He gave them to us. He has a purpose and a reason for why he did that. He has allowed you and myself to have experiences and to have things that we've gone through in life to be used for his glory, but do we hold on to them with bitterness and anger? Or do we say, God, they are yours. How do I use them for you? Are you using your talents and abilities and giftings as, as are you using them for God's glory or are you using them for your own? Are you using what God has perfectly crafted you with because you're, you want to be viewed as being awesome? So the last question for your community group. Again, you only have about 36 things to go over in your community group this week. The question I want you to write down is how do you serve God? How are you living out being a living sacrifice for Him? And the priorities that God has given us, 
our top priority should be our relationship with God. Secondly, our relationship with our spouse or with our children, in that order. And third, our third responsibility is the church. When he says that you are to be a living sacrifice in Romans 12, 1 and 2, a verse that we went over a lot this summer, when he says, in view of God's mercy, and then the phrasing in our, in our common language would be, it makes common sense that you offer everything to God, a living sacrifice. But if you're like me, and again, I'm sorry, you have the mentality of, I deserved God's mercy. We don't have a view of how disgusting we are, that that leper whose limbs are falling off and face is falling off and it's disgusting and grotesque and ulcerated, that that's where our heart is without Jesus. That's where our heart is in sin, that we were children deserving of wrath, but God in His mercy. When that's where we start and we view His mercy, then it makes common sense that everything we are and have and am, that we give it to God and become a living sacrifice for Him. If you're wondering, well, how do I get involved at church? I'm so glad you asked. We have many ways. Please come in, talk to us. We'd love to help you get plugged into one of our teams. How do you get involved in a community group? Again, I'm so glad you asked. Please come and talk to us. We see this is where church really happens. This is just the starting point for the week. The church operates all week long. The body of Christ operates all week long and, and where you live, learn, work, and play. And, and we come together to help learn from each other in our community groups and in getting together. And are we pointing people towards Jesus? So please come and talk to us. We want to help you. As Will said at the very beginning, we love you. We care for you. We want to be there for you. We know that we need you there for us as well. We're in this together. This is not a solo sport. We have to be in it together, not just with us, but the other churches in our community as well. So how are we doing this together? So again, takeaways, if you want to be involved in serving, whether it's at Hope Church or in our community or in different ways, please come and talk to us. Anybody you see up here on stage, anybody you see wearing a blue shirt, then Hope Kids, anybody you see wearing a uh, Hope Church t-shirt that's greeting you, please let us know how we can help. If you're curious how you can be in a community group, ask that same group of people. We would love to be able to point you to how you can be involved. Lord, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you that the things that you have asked us to do, you also know that we can't do them under our own power. That we can only do what you're called us to do because of your Holy Spirit, because of the time spent in your word, time spent in prayer, time spent with you, and then you will work through us, demonstrating just how powerful you are, that you can take a disgusting sinner like myself and redeem it for your glory. Lord, you've done that for people in this room, but Lord, I believe there's people in this room who have never called out to you. So I pray that you would work in their life right now. 
that they would see the, the great need they have that only you can fulfill. Going to church doesn't do it. Being good doesn't do it. It's only calling out to you. Can they begin that relationship? Lord, I pray for those that are here that do know you, Lord, that you would continue to work in our hearts and our lives, that we wouldn't be sidetracked by all the things the world has to offer, that we wouldn't focus on trying to make ourselves awesome, but that we would live to point out how awesome you already are. I pray these things in Jesus' name.